0: Hello, and welcome to this milestone podcast. It's the 200th episode of the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodwin, your host. This podcast is inspired by the L. Hubbard Writers and Illustrators of the Future program, now in its 40th year. Dedicated to the aspiring writer and artist, and will provide inspiration and tips from top professionals in the field. This is a very special show in celebration of episode number 200. During the Writers of the Future Volume 38 workshop week, a live performance of L. Ron Hubbard's The Professor Was a Thief was presented to the contest winners and judges. Why the professor was a thief? Because it is the L. Ron Hubbard story included in Writers of the Future Volume 38. So sit back and enjoy the performance. It's only 30 minutes and will be followed by a QA and a with the actors.
1: Welcome to the L. Ron Hubbard Theater's Golden Age Radio Hour featuring The Professor Was a Thief. By way of introduction, The Professor Was a Thief first appeared in 1940 in Astounding Science Fiction magazine, the publication that heralded the golden age of science fiction. The story was later included in an anthology entitled My Best Science Fiction Story, as chosen by 25 outstanding authors, edited by then well-known and prolific editor Leo Margulies. L. Ron Hubbard wrote an introduction to this story, and here are his words. Upon being asked to pick my favorite short story for this anthology, I found myself torn between two types of science fiction, the epic and the down-to-earth sort of thing. For example, to look into mankind's future without space travel is, in my opinion, to gaze upon a dead destiny, such as Wells depicts in his time machine. L. Ron Hubbard goes on to say, However, I do not mean to hold forth on a soapbox. I know there to be other prophets and science minstrels who will point the way and sing Man to the Stars. Let me consider, then, that other, that down-to-earth kind of science fiction story. The professor was a thief, may not be the great literature, in fact, I'm not even sure what great literature really is. A savant, I once knew, defined it to me as any writing which changed a trend or originated a form. On his authority, uh, then, not mine, this story must be great literature, for it changed a trend. In the days when it was first published, all of the professors of science fiction were blowing up worlds, creating new universes, making bigger and better cataclysms. My professor had another idea. I thought it rather unique, if only because it did not follow an established motif. That is why I especially like this story. I hope you like it, too. L. Ron Hubbard. And now we bring you tonight's feature presentation starring Bill Cates, Chris Moroy, Travis Oates, Roger Scott, and I remain R.F. Daly. The Professor Was a Thief by L. Ron Hubbard.
2: Warren said he had to see you right
1: away! Yeah, uh, uh, you, you, you sent
3: for me? Yeah. Oh, uh, I sent for you? Oh, uh, yes. Uh, I remember now. Uh, pending your retirement, you've been put on the copy desk. My what? Your retirement. We're retiring all employees over 50. We need new people and new ideas here. Retirement? Uh, when? How? Effective day after tomorrow, Pop. You are no longer with this newspaper. Our present social security policy. You'll we'll pay me seem- off about 20 bucks complete.
1: What yeah. uh, the hell with that? I brought this paper into the world and it's gonna take me out. You can't do this to me. I'm staying as a reporter.
3: All right, you're staying as a reporter then. It's only two days. And you're giving me assignments. All right, uh, here's an article I clipped a couple months ago.
1: Uh, it was just some speech. Made a long while ago to some physics society. Oh, Yeah, get a story on it. <laughs> well, I'll show him. Call me a has-been. Well, I can make a story out of nothing. He uh, thinks I can't do that, right? Well, I can. I'll get such a story that he'll have to keep me on. And promote me. And raise my pay. Oh, I wish I'd never heard the name Hannibal Pertwee. Now here I am in New Jersey, in front of a house not much bigger than an architect's model.
4: Oh, what's your business?
1: Uh, I, I want to see Hannibal Pertwee. I'm a reporter from the New York uh, World Journal.
4: Uh, uh, you are Mr. Bruhauer from the Scientific Investigator? No,
1: no, no. I'm I'm from the New York World Journal. Uh. I-, I came to get a story on this... This lecture you handed out a couple of months ago?
4: Oh, oh, yes, yes, certainly. You must see my garden. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Such a wholesome originality and uh, such gigantic trees. Hmm, what? Why, over a thousand feet tall, some of them. Uh, Of course, uh, trees don't ordinarily grow to a thousand feet. The tallest tree in the world is uh, much less than that. Uh, There, now, (laughs) I'm so sorry to walk you all over the place this way, but I have recently given my cars to charity.
1: Wait, 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 I haven't been anywhere.
4: No, indeed not. Uh. My garden is only a small portion of what I have yet to show you. Uh, Please come in. Uh. Oh, what an unusual cigarette case design. Uh, Yeah, listen. Ah. Fascinating. What a delicate mechanism. Yeah. You know, I've made several rather small things myself. Here is a car which I spent much time constructing. The engine is uh, quite perfect. See, it runs. Oh. Ah. Of course, it should get about 100,000 miles to the gallon. Therefore, if a car could make the trip and it could carry enough gas, then it could go to the moon. The moon is only 238,857 miles from Earth, you know. (laughs) Now I should show you around. I wish to show you my trains.
1: Uh, trains? Uh, uh, no, Mr. Pertwee, I I came about that lecture. Lecture? Yeah, uh, that you made before the uh, Physics Society. Something about uh, moving
4: freight. Oh, the Pertwee elucidation of the simplification of transportational facilities is applying to the freight problems of the United States. You mean that?
1: Yes, yes, That that's it. Uh, just some comment or other. I I I couldn't understand just exactly what it was all about.
4: Oh, there's nothing half so lovely as a train.
1: Oh my, you got stations and semaphores and miniature rivers and and, and, and underpasses and sidings and switches and oh, a whole fleet of freight cars in a yard. Nearly every type of equipment is represented here.
4: Yeah. Yeah, you must go now.
1: Uh, look, 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 Just, just give me some kind of an idea what you were talking about in that article, so I can mention it in the newspaper.
4: No, uh, uh, do you understand anything about infinite acceleration? Well, th- or the fourth no. dimension? Uh, no. Einstein's mathematics? No, no. Then I don't think I can explain. Uh, uh, they would not believe me. So you see, uh, you wouldn't either. Uh, Good night. Uh, wait, 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 wait. No, no. no. Oh.
1: I seem to be missing my cigarette case. Well? That story you sent me out on, I didn't think there was any story there. And you were right as far as the news was concerned, but human interest, oh. you call
3: this a story? Go back to the copy desk.
2: Hey,
5: you look like you need a drink. I do. So, uh, he's making it tough on you, is he? <sighs> dirty rat. Ah, never mind, Pop. When better newspaper men are built, they'll all look like you. That's eh, something'll break sooner or later. I'm leaving tomorrow. Ah, oh, say, look now, don't quit under fire. You know what ails that guy? He's scared. That's all. Scared of most of us, and you in particular. Oh. Why, Hell's Bells, you belong in that chair. We're losing money, hundreds a day, and when it gets to thousands, the publisher himself will get wise. I, I, I'm being laid off. You? Nah. Oh, for God's sake. Hey.
2: Oh. Give me rewrite. Oh, I'll take it. Uh, this is Jensen. I'm up on the drive. Ready? Ready. Okay. At 12.45 today... Grant's tomb disappeared. Huh? Get it down. The traffic on the drive was at its noon hour peak, and the benches around the structure were filled with people which, without warning, a rumble sounded, the alarmed populace- Okay,
1: to hell with the words. Give me
2: the story, give me the story. How did it happen? I don't know. Nobody knows. Uh, There are half a dozen police cars around here staring at the place Grant's tomb was. Uh, uh. I was about a block away when I heard shrieks and I came tearing down to find out the traffic was jammed up and the people were running away from the place while oh. other people ran towards it. So I asked a nursemaid about it and she'd seen it happen. She said there was a rumbling sound and then suddenly the tomb began to shrink in size and in less than 10 seconds it had vanished.
1: Was, uh, was, was anybody seen the monkeying with it? Well, the chauffeur said he saw a little guy
2: in a swallowtail coat tear across the spot uh, where the tomb had been.
1: All right. How many dead?
2: Uh, nobody knows if anybody's dead. Well, find out. How can I find out when everybody that was sitting on the steps and all completely disappeared? They're gone. Ah, uh, somebody's crazy.
1: No bodies, no tomb. <sighs> okay, I, I, I got this much. You hoof it back there and uh, get stories from the witnesses. <sighs> Grant's tomb is gone. Get, uh, get Columbia on the phone. We have to get a statement from someone that knows this stuff. You, Sweeney, uh, uh, grab an encyclopedia. See if there's anything like this that ever happened before. Uh, Morton, grab a camera. Get out there for some pictures. Dunstan, Dunstan, you go with Morton and find the relatives of the people who had vanished along with the tomb. Get going! Uh, oh, Anna, start start setting up an extra. Uh, we'll be on the street in half an hour, second extra in an hour and a half with pictures. Is this Pop? Yeah, this is Pop. What are you waiting for? Okay, half an hour it is. All right. Louie, get some uh, shots of Grant's tomb out of the files. Rush him down to composing. Uh, who's this? Freeman.
5: Grab your pencil. Oh, okay. Got it. The Empire State Building disappeared about five minutes ago. Right. I'm down right. at the 100th precinct. About three seconds ago, a cop came staggering in with the news. I haven't had a chance to look.
1: Uh, but, 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 but get down
3: there. Uh, see.
1: Grant's tomb vanished just before you were called. Check. Yeah. The Empire State Building gone. Good art. Get a camera to the Empire State. It's disappeared. Check, Pops. Uh. Copy, boy. Listen, uh, Branner, listen, uh, limit the first extra, get set for a second. Second story coming down. The Empire State Building has disappeared. Okay. Well, get some pictures down to Branner in the uh, Empire State.
3: Uh.
1: New York is going piece by piece. <laughs> Call the mayor, somebody. Tell him about it. Ask him what he means to do. Check! All right. Sweeney. No
3: such incident in the encyclopedia.
1: Unprecedented. 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 Lawson and Frankie, you two get cameras, rush downtown, be on hand in case any other big buildings exit. Copy, boy. Find out how many people are usually in the Empire State. Check. Yeah. (laughs) Ah, this Frankie. Pennsylvania
5: Station's gone.
1: Pennsylvania Full of people?
5: Yeah, and trains and everything. Uh, There's nothing there but a hole in the ground. I was lucky. I was about a block away and I saw it happen. You said big, so I figured Pennsylvania... Get the story! Well, there was a kind of a rumble. And then, all of a sudden, the station seemed to cave into itself. And it Uh, was gone. uh, A little guy in a swallowtail coat almost knocked me down running away. He was scared to death. Everybody was trying to get away. And right on the corner, one of our boys was shouting our first extra. The whole building just disappeared. That's all. People, trains, everything. You ought to see the hole in the ground.
1: Get statements. Uh, uh, Rush your pictures back here. Don't be a damn photographer all your life. Okay, Pop. All right. Pennsylvania Station. Tim, get this for rewrite. About five minutes ago, Pennsylvania Station disappeared. People. Trains, everything. There's only a hole in the ground. There was a rumble, and then the thing vanished. Seemed to cave into itself, but there's no debris. It's all gone. All gone. Okay, Pops. Uh, copy, boy. Uh, pictures of Pennsylvania Station. Uh, Brandon, please. Uh, uh, listen, keep adding to that extra. We got pictures of Pennsylvania Station coming. It's, oh, by the way, it's gone. Penn? Yeah? Oh, boy, what a story. Yeah. Angles, angles. Hey, uh, I got a statement from the
2: mayor. Uh, he's yelling sabotage. What? He says he's phoning the governor to call out the militia. He says they can't do this to his town.
1: All right, banner for number three. Mayor objects, calls out militia. Story's coming down. All uh, right, get roll it out, spread it out thick. They'll be half panicked by now. So stab in a human interest angle. Make them, uh, make them take it calm. Check. All right, where's it? Ah, where's that cigarette case? Angles. Two men with swallowtail coats. Eddie, take this lead. Mystery man seen in two catastrophes. A small man with a swallowtail coat was present today at both the vanishing of the tomb and Pennsylvania Station. Was seen to run across the place where the tomb had been and collided with one of our reporters just after Pennsylvania disappeared. Got it? Got it. Check. All right. Now, now there's something about that. There's something about that Hannibal Pertwee. Railway station, cigarette case, swallowtail coat. She's
5: sure gone. What? The Empire State. There's nothing but a hole in the ground. There were
1: umpteen thousand people inside. There's no sign of them. Okay, okay. Do do, do me a story about about the state of the city. Uh, How calm they're taking it. Smooth them down. Third extra is on its way, and you'll make the lead in the fourth.
3: Did you do this? Foss? Well, yeah, sure. What about it? Why didn't you call me? You know where I eat lunch. How do you know this story is true? What do you mean spreading terror all over town? How is it that we get a paper out so quick when there's nobody else on the streets? If this is a fuss, then we'll be in Dutch plenty. Civil and, and criminal actions... It takes guts to run a paper. Well, if that's what it takes, you've got too many... Now we've got to check everything we've printed. If we oh. have got another extra on the rollers, you've got to kill it and find out if it's true. The, 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 third,
1: the, the third extra is on the street.
3: Listen, I have pinch hit as night editor so often that no one's questioned my right to go ahead. But you took the authority without even trying to find me. A, a story has got to go when it's hot. And you ran this one so hot that you're driving New York into a panic. What? Get out. What? I mean it. I said get out. You're through. Finished. Washed up. Today, instead of tomorrow!
1: Ah, well, that was fun while it lasted.
5: (laughs) Are you gonna take him at his word, hmm? Just because you were smart enough not to wait? He's just sore because you did so swell. Ah, maybe. You're not gonna quit like this, are you? Well, no, not like this.
4: Well, um, I'm very sorry, uh, but I can't ask you in tonight. I, uh, I am so busy.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, 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 I just came uh, after my cigarette case.
4: Cigarette case?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I lost it uh, when I was here before. I would dislike having to part with it permanently. Uh, you don't mind if I come in and just take a look, do you?
4: Why, I... Oh, no. here we uh, go. Ah.
1: Uh, yeah, yeah, I was just sitting right here. Right here in this chair. You don't mind if I look elsewhere?
4: Yes. I mean, no. I'm very busy. Really, you you will have to go. Oh, but my cigarette case is is very valuable to me. Uh, Of course, of course. I I appreciate your predicament. Uh Uh, But if I had seen it, and and if I find it... uh, Oh, dear, what am I saying? Well,
1: all right. I, I won't trouble you any further. I can see how upset you are. What's that in your
4: pocket? Ah! Yeah. Uh, wonder how that
1: got there. Yeah, so do I. And now if I could inspect your trains again... Well,
4: yes, all right. Uh, just come this way.
1: Oh. Damn him. And he broke my cigarette case. Uh. Rye, straight. Well, then.
2: Ain't that awful about them buildings and all, eh? The wickedness of this city is what brought it on. Just yesterday, I says to a gent in here, I says, a town as sinful
1: as this... Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. You mind if I smoke?
2: As I was saying, a town as sinful as this cannot meet but one fate in the mighty wrath
1: What? The whole bar vanished. Complete with tender. Oh, no. There's the bar. It's only about an inch long. Oh, and there's the bartender. Oh, he doesn't seem to be moving. Uh, Well, I'll I'll keep it in my pocket for now. Now... (laughs) What could have happened? Taxi! I I need a smoke. Dex. Dex (gasps) Taxi! Cab's gone. What's this? Uh, Oh, there it is. There it is. A little less than an inch long. I better call the night editor from a phone booth. Yeah, Joe. This is Pop. Look, I got a bar and a taxi in my pocket. Stand by for an extra about midnight.
2: You, huh? Sleep it off, Pop, and drink one
1: for me. No, 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 no. So they won't believe me, will they? Well, I'll show them. I'll show them.
4: Let go of me. I won't. Mm -hmm. It's no use. I won't tell you or anybody Uh, else. After what they did to me, why should I do anything for them?
1: I got some items here I found accompanying the uh, vacant spaces in the vicinity of New York on your uh, toy railway system.
4: I'll have you for burglary. (laughs) Uh, You can't prove anything at all. Uh, What if I do have some models of buildings? Uh, Can't I... Make models of what I please?
1: Yeah, what about those people that you can
3: see in them? hmm?
4: Can't I make people in model form, too?
3: (sighs) what? You here again? Yeah, that's right, and I have- There's no use begging for that job. We don't need anybody. Now get out, or I'll have you thrown out. I don't think so. Send in Mr. Graw. I'll blacklist you. You'll never work on another paper again. Yeah, I'll take my chances, all right? Mr. Graw. Uh, well, well, here I am. What's, what's this? Oh, uh, he, he, he won't get out. Uh, he sent for you. Not, not me. I didn't.
1: Well, of all the cheek. Now, 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 listen, you two. I've been in this business a long time, and I know what a story is worth. You're losing money, and you need circulation. Well, the way to get circulation is to get stories. Now.
3: No, I won't.
1: Here, here on the table. Pennsylvania Station, Grand Central, Grant's Tomb, Careful. and the Empire State, and the bar and a taxi.
2: <laughs> I won't! What are these?
1: Just what you see, the
2: missing buildings. <laughs> Preposterous. If, if you have gone to all
1: this trouble just to make some
2: foolish
4: Oh, oh,
1: oh, I've gotten to plenty of trouble, but not to have anything made. These are the real thing. Right. Yeah, well, I'll make you a proposition. Hmm? I'll restore these to their proper places. If I do that, can I have my job back permanently? (laughs) If you can put back what this city has lost,
2: I'll give you your job back. Yes, But why waste our time? Uh,
1: All right, just call Mr. Barstow of the Pennsylvania Railroad. Get him over here on the double, and I'll put the buildings back. Uh,
2: But how?
1: Uh, Just call him, that's all. You can't afford to run the risk of losing this chance. If
2: you're talking nonsense... I...
5: You called me, Gra. By God, I hope you've got some news.
2: A uh, uh, pop here claims to have your station. He says, this is it.
5: <laughs> is this a joke? I mean, that's a perfectly
1: good replica, certainly, but... Look, 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 look. This is, this is Hannibal Pertwee. Probably the smartest scientist since Moses. Oh, you. <laughs> so you know him? Yeah, used to bother us Mm -hmm. quite a bit. What is it now? Ah, we get somewhere. Now, Barstow, if this gentleman replaces your Pennsylvania station and these other objects, will you make a contract with him? About his ideas on freight? I don't know which is the craziest
5: statement, that you'll restore the buildings or that anything he can think up will affect our freight, but
1: uh, go ahead. Here, I typed it up. Sign it. All right, that's done. All right. So, this is what you've been begging for, for all this time. You got it now. Go ahead.
4: You mean that you really consider my propositions? That you may utilize my findings?
5: I've said so in this paper.
4: Well, <clears throat> you see, gentlemen, my idea was to reduce freight and size so that it could be shipped easily, and so I analyzed the possibilities of infinite acceleration. All
1: right, all right. Spare the lecture. Get busy. They won't understand anything but action.
4: Go ahead. Oh, action. Yes. Uh, may I have the cigarette case? Uh, sure. Yeah. It was very ingenious, I thought. I had been waiting for this very thing. Uh-huh. Apparatus would have been noticed, you see. Yeah. Uh, but this, <laughs> oh, this was perfect. One can stand on the edge of a crowd and press the buttons both together, and the atomic bubble within is set to nearly infinite acceleration. It spins out and engulfs the first whole object it embraces and sets it spinning in four dimensions. Of course, as the object spins at a certain speed, it is accordingly reduced in size. Now, Einstein once said... All right,
1: all right, just just, just push the buttons in the direction of the uh, tiny taxi.
4: it compresses time as well as space. I just release the bubble.
1: Yeah, what address, buddy? Where the hell am I? Cabby, yeah, I tell you what, you step back here out of the way. Do your stuff, Hannibal.
4: Okay. Hey,
1: my cab! Yeah, that's all right. We'll uh, we'll make your cab grow up shortly down in the street where it belongs. Frankie, you and Lawson get some cameras. Freeman, you would call the mayor and get tell him to gather around for the fun. Uh, Sweeney, you write up an extra lead, Let, telling the city is all well, and I'll uh, I'll knock out a story on this.
2: Uh, no, you won't.
1: Oh, uh, wait a minute! You you said in front
2: of witnesses. I don't care what I said. I've suddenly got. An idea. Who got out those extras so fast yesterday? Well,
1: Pop uh, did.
2: Yeah. It, right? Well, uh, at first I believed Calborn, but when I got to thinking it over, after I found out how fast they really
1: had come. Oh no, no, no! no, wait a minute. That uh, Calborn didn't mean nothing by it. He's just, he's just a little young. That's uh, all.
2: Pop, you can't have his job. Well, I didn't say I wanted. Pop, I've got a better spot for you than that. My job. Huh? <laughs> Your managing editor. Maybe you can make this son of law and mine amount to something if you train him right.
1: Managing editor?
2: Yes. I'm I'm going to slip out of the job. I need rest. Oh. And so, Mr. Managing Editor, I leave <laughs> you to the additions. Well.
1: Oh. <laughs> Hooray! <laughs> Hooray! All right. Now, what are you waiting for? We got an extra edition to get out, and that means work. Hannibal, you trot along with Frankie and Lawson. They'll help you put the buildings back. And listen, Frankie, don't miss any shots. Copy boy.
2: Okay, Pop
0: welcome rf Daly, travis os and roger scott
6: happy to be here happy to be uh, here uh, indeed <laughs>
4: Hello, everybody out there in podcast land. (laughs) Absolutely.
0: Now, being mindful that this is the writers and illustrators of the future podcast, and I always try to provide some tips to help make better writers and artists, this is a question and answer that we're going to have with the actors that will help give you some tips on how to make yourself a better writer, and if you're an illustrator, how to better uh, portray a story. So first of all, from your perspective, and in reference also to the story we just listened to, What makes a good story from an actor's perspective?
6: For me, it's... uh, And this is Roger Scott speaking. Yeah, this is Roger Scott. Uh, For me, it's, uh, it's transportation. It's transportation into another world that the writer creates. They set the parameters. It takes us out of our daily lives. It moves us into a world that we may think sometimes that we're familiar with, but might move us deeper into it so that we understand it better, or it could move us into a fantastic world, like the professor was a thief. And now we're in a world where, wow, something like that could happen. Well, in the writer's hands, in this case, in L. Ron Hubbard's hands, the answer is yes, because he creates parameters that are believable even if it's believable in the gossamer world that he creates. And so it's a fun place to go into. So transportation for me makes a big difference. Uh,
4: this is Travis. So it's adding to that. I, I, think, I think as well, a story that has universal and uh, evergreen appeal uh, is one that also relates to the universe that you live in you know uh, the time that you live in i think the best stories are relatable whether you're in 1940 or 2022 uh and i think many of l ron hubbard's stories and this one included have reflections of the world that we live in within you know the boundaries of the story that's being told
1: and this is rf daily and i'd like to i'd like to add on to uh, travis's thought on that. The thing that I love about uh, this story in particular is that the, the, the prose transports you directly into the time, the, cl- the, the, the way that they, they speak, the, um, the language, the idioms, the, the slang. And it's not only the time chronologically, but it's also the place, you know, the, the newspaper business at that time and uh l ron hubbard knew all of these things intimately and he was able to uh communicate them so well it was pretty much easy for us to jump on that sled and ride uphill which is an odd thing to do on a sled but it somehow worked
0: that's great thank you now i've done a lot of interviews like i said this is number 200 and i've talked to a lot of authors and they all have different ideas of how to create dialogue you know what they've done i know when i when i've talked a lot with scott orson scott card he says what's your problem you talk all the time you know and i think some some authors get stifled just they're trying instead of just like how do you talk to somebody they try to imagine what it's like to talk to somebody which is really silly so as an actor you're stuck with reciting the dialogue that's given you what have you found that that's worked or not work in terms of creating dialogue that's actually easy to perform or that feels natural to perform, which enhances obviously your performance? I'll let Travis, you can go on this one here.
4: Sure. And I should note that my my primary job is actually as a script doctor. So I often go in to existing scripts and change the dialogue so that it sounds more natural uh, and and sounds like it is more believable coming out of someone's mouth. Uh, But as an actor, I mean, when you're, you're given dialogue, you know, it's kind of similar in a weird way to, you know, if you, if you're playing someone, the bad guy, if you're playing Mm -hmm. someone who's evil, you know, people always say, you know, how can you play someone effectively and you have to find, you know, the humanity uh, and something to relate even with the most evil of person that you're, you're doing. So with the dialogue, you know, even if the dialogue when you initially read the dialogue, if it doesn't fit into your brain, you have to find a way to find the flow and to find the, the uh, pattern and the pattern of that dialogue, you know, uh, especially when you're dealing with dialogue that was written, you know, uh, 50, 60, 70 years ago, uh, you have to kind of do a little bit of research and, 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 and maybe uh, immerse yourself into that time period so that you're, you're better able to, to find what that author was trying to impart and and in what way that dialogue. Uh, um, an author, for example, that is very hard sometimes to translate their dialogue on the screen is uh, Stephen King because it's written in that Bo- Boston, you know, upper, upper uh, New England accents. Uh, and sometimes it can be very painful to hear people try to duplicate that. And often, you know, when you get an actor who really... Keeps into it, they have no problem with it. So I think, you know, anytime you're dealing with something that is a period, I, I think part of it is just trying to immerse yourself in that period mentally. Good,
0: thank you. RF, any thoughts? Yes, yeah,
1: I completely agree with that. Um, but the one thing that we also have to remember is that although there are there are certainly some differences in the way people spoke uh, and the words they spoke at different times, I think you'll find even Shakespeare, when Shakespeare is spoken. Uh, With an understanding that you would have if you were speaking contemporary English, Uh, it communicates just as well as contemporary English does to a modern person. Uh, The intentions are the most important thing. So if you're communicating the ideas and the thoughts and the emotions, uh, I think that probably takes precedence over any other uh, aspect of uh, speaking the dialogue.
4: And I, I think that's key, what he just said there. If you listen to people who are doing Shakespeare and, it, and it's more like they're reciting a poem, you know, without, without thinking through the process of what's being said, instead of reciting it like it's um, beautiful prose rather than somebody actually speaking it, uh, that's when Shakespeare becomes painful to watch instead of glorious to watch.
6: Got uh, Roger? Yeah, I was going to say, along with both, what RF was saying and Travis was saying, first of all, on Travis's thing, like if you're playing a, a, a bad guy character, first remember, the bad guy never thinks, or the evil guy, he doesn't think he's evil. Right. Right? He's right. playing what it is. Tony Soprano didn't think he was evil. He was doing what was expedient for what was necessary to be done. And that's the way bad guys are too. We can perceive them as evil in terms of what they're doing. But getting back to what R.F. was saying, the human condition is behind all of it. And so you have to find the human condition behind the guy. Like the first time that I meet Pop as the reporter in uh, uh, The Professor Was a Thief, and I find out that he's been sacked, there's a couple things as an actor and doing the dialogue that goes for mind. First of all, he's being sacked because, what, he's in his 50s? They're getting rid of anybody over 50? So L. Ron Hubbard has introduced ageism very early on in the story. And one of the things I think about when he says he's being sacked as my character is I'm thinking, "Well, wait a second. How old am I? How much time do I have? Uh, All right. okay, so this is the way it works. All right. Then I've got I don't know. Maybe I'm in my 30s. I got 15 years or something like that. And then I'm going to be out the door, too. And so. There's a sympathy, but there's also an empathy coming from my character in terms of what he's dealing with in his present-day reality, and I think that kind of human condition behind the words is what brings the dialogue to life. And sometimes writers miss. A friend of mine once told me of an episode of Mad Men, in which they were talking about, of course, that was set, you know, in the fifties and so on, and one of the characters says. Um, when they in summation to what's going on, she says, well, it is what it is. And it was like, they didn't use that phrase then. And it's amazing that it got by the people who both wrote and did the story that, you know, that, that didn't fit. And if it doesn't, if it doesn't fit, The perilous thing is it takes you out of the story because now you're starting to think about the phrase that didn't fit and you're not listening to what the other actors are saying because it pulls you out. Now, the professor was a thief pulls you in because the human condition is there, the words are there, as as RF said, the idioms and so on of the time are there, so you are immersed totally in that world. Later on, at the end of the story, when Pop's character gets elevated to the guy who's running the whole thing, we find another aspect of the human condition, and that the guy who was sacking him was the son-in-law. So we've got nepotism in the story, too. And those are things that fit in that make the whole thing rounded out in the human condition, the way people operate, and the reasons why people operate the way they do. I love that.
4: Uh, an acting coach one time gave me uh, a great piece of advice because I was dealing with a character that was kind of difficult, not a very nice character. And it was a character who was in a play. And it was a character who wasn't a huge part, and I was having a hard time figuring out how to do it. And, And the acting coach told me that in every piece of work that you're doing as an actor. The character you're playing is not only the hero of that story, but the central character of that story mm. from their perspective, right? <laughs> from their perspective, this is the story that's being told about that character. Um, you know, and, and that's also another thing to keep in mind, like when you're, when you're doing, doing dialogue as an actor is that, you know, from their perspective, this is their story. They're the hero. You know, this is they're the central character, uh, and that can change how you, how you do certain dialogue. Pertwee, in the, in the story that we just heard, uh, Pertwee, uh, is the, he's the central hero of that story from his, perp- from his perspective, you know. So that's changes that's, the way
0: you do the dialogue. Yeah, that's, that's very, very good on that. Um, a while ago, speaking with Phil Proctor, who is another amazing actor, talked about how he really specifically uh, appreciated Erwin Hubbard's dialogue, his, his knack for doing dialogue. Back in the 50s, 30s, 40s, in these uh, pulp fiction stories, but also when he wrote Battlefield Earth and Mission Earth, because Phil was in all that has been in so many of the different stories. And I think all three of you have been in RF, definitely narrated a lot, but I think you've also been in various stories. But Phil was talking about how Owen Hubbard's dialogue was just one of those rare instances where he doesn't feel a need to have to change words. Sometimes Mm -hmm. when he gets dialogue from certain authors, he feels I can't. This isn't. I'm in stultified. I, can, I can't say these words. It's not right, and he never had to do that with Alan Hubbard. Do any of you have any uh, comments on that? From any of the the uh, this this story, as well as any other ones that maybe you've you've done of Mr. Roberts.
1: Uh, if I may, I uh, I did narrate a whole slew of these stories, and uh, I, of course I found all of the dialogue to be believable and uh, understandable and really very easy to perform. But as the narrator, I was the voice of L Ron Hubbard in a way uh, or at least the storyteller L Ron Hubbard and his thoughts, his thoughts were, um, well, as I say, if it's not on the page, it's not on the stage. His thoughts were so coherent and so descriptive. It was, and so real, so true. It was very easy for me to, to tell the story in a way that makes sense and and communicates to the audience in such a way that they can become part of the story themselves.
6: Right.
0: Roger, you're going to say something?
6: Yeah. Yeah. I, I was just going to add to that, that the language in the story, the flow of the words is so precise. RF is exactly right. You don't need to add anything to it. I can only assume that he was a good jigsaw puzzle worker too, because all the pieces fit in the characters and in what they're saying the way they're saying it and so it's you know it's it's a treat as an actor to take the words in front of you and you know play the play and just do the words they're right there
0: that's great now in terms of okay so listeners out there listening to this to this podcast the idea of writing dialogue have you all experienced something that like the difference between good dialogue and bad dialogue or what makes something really work for you versus not that you can say anything you have to say on that,
4: Travis? Well, a professional actor never has bad dialogue. Nope. Because you, you find a way, you find a way to make that good dialogue. It's, it's all in the eye of the beholder, but you know, obviously since my, my job for a living is to, to take dialogue and to change it. I, I have seen some, uh, shall you say, uh, Difficult dialogue to uh, just to say and changed it to, to dialogue that's easier to say. Um, but, you know, it's all an eye of the holder. I mean, I love working on stuff the older, the better. The, the problem is one of the ways to make modern dialogue sound better is to make it less articulate, <laughs> which is sad to say. Uh, but, you know, I love, you know, I just worked on a Western not too long ago. And even in the Western where you think, you know, these people are, somehow dumber than we are because they are from a society which, you know, is more crude technologically. Uh, but their words have a lyricism to them and and kind of a beautiful flow to them. Even the inarticulate people in those Westerns, it's still a pattern and a flow. I mean, you were just talking about Shakespeare, uh, R.F., and, and Shakespeare, uh, the, he was often writing, the characters in there were supposed to be like the, the lower class individuals you know they were talking the people 's English it was supposed to be guttural you know english by the, by the you know by societal terms, and yet it had such a lyricism and such a beauty to it, and you know uh, such a beautiful way of talking comparatively
1: people were a lot more literate um, at, at when we say when I say literate, I mean uh, books had a more central place in people 's uh, experience of learning and so forth they didn't even the
4: (laughs) illiterate people talked more literate yes well they but they listen they
6: listened listened to people who were literate though right (laughs) (laughs) one of the things go ahead i was just going to say rf one of the things that brought all of this to my mind immediately when you started talking about that travis and how you have to make things almost more inarticulate for the ear today i go back to that ken burns uh civil war series when they were reading those letters from Confederate privates and 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 Union privates uh, back to their families and stuff, and oh my gosh, the 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 writing in those letters and the words and whatnot, you go, whoa! We have lost a whole bunch of stuff because these people had a way of communicating uh, in words that were so poetic.
4: There's a comedian on YouTube that. Um, in the same style of the letters from the Civil War. Yeah. Those letters uh, from the most recent war. Back, back. <laughs> and it's really hilarious to hear, like, people talking about modern things in, in those terms because it's just so ridiculous and it just sounds so... I don't know petty compared to the things that they were talking about and
1: yeah. here's another thought uh, on that same thing uh in those days they had to dip a pen into an inkwell and they had to write and it was a time-consuming thing which gave them mm-hmm. time to think they weren't tweeting with their thumbs you know so they they were took they considered what they were saying i think a lot more than people who uh, are, are doing it now
4: and may yeah. i say that was a lot more difficult to do in the middle of the frozen winter when people were shooting at you yeah. So it's really yeah. amazing that some of those letters were sent period. It's
1: amazing their iPhones worked at all.
4: <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> now in terms of of so a writer or an aspiring author here listening to this, what would be some of your um cautionary um advice that you could provide to writing
4: uh dialogue? Uh I would say the biggest thing since I see a lot of dialogue that is being paid to be rewritten. Uh, do not overwrite. Uh, write the dialogue that is necessary for the scene. Don't write dialogue. Don't explain to me something that you're doing. You know, uh, that happens a lot too in scripts. You know? Uh, you know, they're doing something in a scene and they're explaining what they're doing at the same time. Uh, also, uh, don't write a whole lot when you're alone. People don't usually talk to themselves. Uh, you know, even in novels, that's usually an internal dialogue. Just uh, let the action, uh, you know, play out. Um, uh, that that would be the that would be the biggest overall things that I would say. Also, I should mention that I I did at The age of seventeen, I did uh, try uh, out. Uh, I, I joined the contest of Writers of the Future, uh, uh, and and you guys looked it up, I believe, and actually found. Yeah. My submission uh, many years ago, um, and I would also say to those people who are who are trying, <clears throat> my writing was horrible when I was seventeen, and I deserved to not get an award uh, but you know as you get better and better don't 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 stop uh attempting don't, don't you know keep those submissions going
0: thank you yeah we had i think our we had one person that had been entering you know for literally decades we've had mo- many winners have been been entering for sure. decades to to build the craft and work on it, and sometimes you have to let your skin thicken a little bit because um, you're definitely going to be experiencing a lot of rejections, which is why the contest is so important as well, because you've got like-minded individuals that are totally willing to do whatever they can to help you and give you that, that assist. And that's, I mean, the three of you right now talking, that's what that is. You're, you're helping these aspiring writers. Here's something that, you know, just something as simple as writing dialogue that is convincing can make the difference between a story selling and not selling, you know? I mean, it's a pretty big part, but it absolutely will. Bob?
1: Yes. Um, I'd like to, to very badly paraphrase uh, and quote L. Ron Hubbard on this. Just write, he says. Just mm. write. Don't, don't sit there and edit yourself as you're writing. Just mm. write it. Write it, write it, write it. Get it done, get it done. And then if you need to edit it, you go back. But don't sit there and, and spend too much time on a sentence. Because you know what the intention is. Just write it so that it communicates.
6: Exactly. I used to do a thing where when I was writing something, I would, I would end my day of writing uh, in the middle of a sentence and then wait overnight and reread what I had written because the next day, it looks like it was written by somebody else other than myself. Okay. And then so you read through there and you get to the point where you're in the middle of the sentence and it's like, oh, and it just takes off from there. And you know, you know how you're going to complete the sentence from there. One of the, one of the things that if I could give some advice to the writers uh, and L. Ron Hubbard obviously did it in this book, he took, he, he went the other way. Like he said, they were doing big words and cataclysmic blowups and stuff. And he went inside. Okay. He went into an unpredictable world where you shrink things down. So when you're creating a story, Jules, you know, we talk about Jules Verne, Certainly L. Ron Hubbard has to fit in that category. They're creating fantastic things. And we find out later on that some of those things were predictive. They were Mm -hmm. things that did happen in some form. So when you're creating a story like L. Ron Hubbard did in this one, in Professor Was a Thief, think about your story. What might happen in the future that you could create in the now? that is something that is possible in the future. I think about this uh, a shrinking of things down and I, I watched a special on this show where uh, a fella had come up with an idea, you know, those big uh, cargo bins that go on the ships and stuff that you see all stacked up and whatnot. The problem is when you get everything emptied, you've got, to, you're, now you're transporting empty cargo bins. Well, the ship only holds so much. Well, this guy came up with a way of, putting those putting those great big squares and with mechanical operation he shrank them down to they till, till they fit together almost like a like a big metal suitcase and instead of being as wide and as long as they were they were only like three feet wide with the whole thing shrinking into its well and I I couldn't help But think of that when I thought of L. Ron Hubbard's thing of shrinking things down. And this guy came up with a way of shrinking things down so that there was more room for more cargo bins. It was amazing. So in in itself, the professor was a thief, was predictive in terms of something that,
4: you know, could possibly happen. Absolutely. Yeah. And let me also say as a writer about the Writers of the Future contest, there used to be, back in the day literally hundreds of places where you could submit a short story, a fantasy short story. There were all kinds of things. There were things called magazines. Mm. Uh, Many of you listening probably haven't heard of those, but there were a lot of them. I
1: think that's just an urban legend. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Um,
4: But, you know, treasure, uh, you know, and and look, I'm not paid to say this. I'm not a part of the organization. Um, uh, They turned me down the one time that I tried to submit something. (laughs) Uh, But I will say like treasure Treasure organizations like this because there's so few places Mm. nowadays where you can write something that's a short story in science fiction or fantasy, submit it, and actually get it published. That is just so rare these days, Um, you know, published on paper, you know, in a form that you can own, not on the internet. Um, And, you know, that's that's pretty cool that you guys are still doing that. And it's still being, you know, you, you have judges that are legit, you know, you're not It's just it's it's uh it's cool that you guys are still doing that. Thank
0: you very much. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's. I mean, it's it's we're carrying forward the the original mission statement as given by by Warren Hubbard to provide that means for aspiring artists to have their chance for their creative efforts to be seen and acknowledged. And now, with over eight hundred winners over the last thirty eight years, we're this coming uh, April we will have volume thirty nine released but we just started year 40 we're in the first quarter of the competition for year number 40. So it's, it's amazing what's going on. We've had, you know, the best of the best of science fiction, fantasy authors as our judges. And then the same thing with the uh, illustrator, with the artists as well. It's um, there is nothing else like it because it's the contest is free to enter. It's blind judged, So the judges only ever see the story or the art and a number. They have no idea if you're male, female, you're, um, Nationality, ethnicity, sex, anything at all it's just strictly by the merit of your work that you will win and did now, you hear
4: him did you hear him say free free to enter right. that, yeah, that also that, that, that
6: means that, something too
4: that, that is a big deal because a lot of places you know that say they 're legit they 're going to ask you for you know two hundred and fifty dollars you know to to give it a shot and, and free to enter that 's a big thing for all you people out there who want to be writers. And especially in the science fiction age, every quarter, you should be sending a submission into these guys.
1: In addition to that, in addition to that, not only is it published, but there are cash prizes, ladies and gentlemen, Uh. cash prizes.
4: Uh, Absolutely.
1: I'm just going to sit back
0: and listen to you guys go back and (laughs) forth. Yeah. We're fans. What can I say? Yeah. I mean, it's all been funded uh, since day one by Owen Hubbard from his estate. So the 12 winners every year of the Writer Contest and the 12 winners every year from the Illustrator Contest are flown out to Hollywood for a week-long workshop. Uh, this past year, they were entertained by amazing and talented actors, including the three of you, on um, receiving one of, these, one of these stories. But they receive a, a workshop, and then we have uh, an amazing gala award ceremony. It's referred to as the Oscars of Science Fiction. Um, it's we have the red carpet. We have usually about 20, 30 media there to interview the the winners. And we have the literally it's a who's who of science fiction and fantasy there in the audience as the winners uh get their uh, awards. And this year it was um we had over three million people listening to the um ceremony as it was happening live. And um like I said, this this podcast now is up to one and a half million listens per episode because of of the It really is a continuation of what was originally intended by Mr. Hubbard when he created this in 1983. And um, we have such great people involved with it that it just, it continues to grow and expand. We have entries from over 175 countries now that come in. And uh, it's just, it's just one of those things that's really amazingly uh, prophetic on his part in creating this thing. But then just by the fact that, you know, you three, what you have to say just shows that, it does what it says it's going to do, you know, and we've got, like I said, over a hundred winners now that will
4: talk about, you know, the success that they've, that they've achieved from this. And correct me if I'm wrong, John, but I don't think I am. This is often the gateway to a larger career for those people too, than that in um, that industry.
0: Absolutely. Um, multiple, you know, multiple judges are actually past winners of the contest, uh, you know, major New York times bestselling authors. It, it's interesting how a, someone will judge themselves they'll disqualify themselves before they even have a chance to enter and that's just it's just so wrong and so another thing that we try to do with this in which you know travis which you suggested a few moments ago too is just enter the comedy. you should be doing it every quarter whether you're a writer or an artist let the judges tell you if you're a winner but the judge will also tell you look at okay you got some ways to go you'll never get judged and said don't you know You'll never get told from writers of industries of future, don't give up your day job. That will never come out of any communication from this organization. The whole thing is about is encouraging, and that's what it's all
4: about. Hey, look, last month I just sold my seventh Hollywood script and I lost the competition. Just imagine if you won it. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And, and you, you have at least twice as many. Well, there well, we to, go.
1: <laughs> to quote a, a famous uh, <laughs> copywriter from a Madison Avenue advertising firm back in the early 60s. It is what it is. <laughs>
6: <laughs>
0: so um yeah, it's been great. So we've got the last minute or two. Um, anything that you three gentlemen would like to say before we wrap up uh this part of our of our podcast.
6: Yeah, I'd like to echo L. Ron Hubbard's words. Just right. Right, 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 right. Good. Yeah. Mike, Rowe's, um, Mike Rowe has a podcast and his mom, now in her 80s, wrote every day, still writes every day. She finally published her first book in her 80s. and was a New York Times bestseller called Vacuuming in the Nude and Other Interesting Ways of Getting Attention. And now she's already on her third book. And, uh, you know, she just never stopped. She never gave up. That's Awesome yeah you know, i
4: would I would say this to aspiring writers. The title of writer is something that exists in your mind. You don't have to have to sold something to be a writer. All you have to be do to be a writer is write. so don't let people tell you you're not a writer and don't let people tell you you're not legitimate uh just keep writing uh if that's your passion. You're a writer if you say you are yeah.
1: and if you pursue writing uh in its most uh pure sense. It's all about communicating. And if you're communicating, you're a writer. Great. Thank
0: you, gentlemen. And thank you for listening. Subscribe to the Writers of the Future podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We've also been syndicated on the United Public Radio Network, where you can find these podcasts as well. Writers of the Future series can be purchased wherever books are sold in the U.S., Canada, the U.K., Australia, and South Africa, and available everywhere via Amazon.com. We are especially appreciative of our sponsor Carnation for supporting this podcast. Carnation has been making delicious milk products for over a century and is still going strong. Writers and illustrators of the future are contests created by Owen Hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged. It is free to enter and open to amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction or fantasy. Again, thank you very much, RF Daly, Travis Oates and Roger Scott for helping me celebrate our 200th episode.